This is an ABC podcast. Today, it's a conversation with Jarvis Cocker, the singer-songwriter and founder of the UK band Pulp. She came from Grisha, the first from knowledge. She studied sculpture at St Martin's College. That's where I Pulp managed to blend pop and rock and even elements of disco with sardonic lyrics that came from Jarvis Cocker's experience of everyday life in post-industrial Britain. She said, I want to live like common people, I want to do whatever common people do, want to sleep with common people, I want to sleep with common people like you. Anyway, a while back, Jarvis decided to move out of his house in London. And that meant dealing with all the boxes and boxes of stuff from his early life that he'd had stashed away in his loft. He thought it was time to sort through all these things and decide what was truly meaningful to him and worth keeping and what was just rubbish. And as he was digging through these artefacts, he found an old exercise book from when he was a 15-year-old school kid in Sheffield. And in this exercise book, he realised he'd written a detailed master plan to take over the music industry. From this and a whole bunch of other jumbled artefacts, Jarvis Cocker has produced a wonderful memoir. It's a portrait of the artist as a young man, from his childhood in Sheffield, through his grand plans to infiltrate and subvert the music industry, to an insane, absurd and near-fatal accident in which he fell out of a high window. I spoke with Jarvis Cocker at Melbourne's Capital Theatre for this year's Melbourne Writers' Festival. He was being beamed in on Zoom from his kitchen table. His book is called Good Pop, Bad Pop. Jarvis, your book begins with the loft in your old house where you'd stashed all that stuff from your early life and it was hidden away for about 20 years. When you opened the door, what did you see beyond that yellow door? Well, yeah, as you say, Richard, I'd moved away from there and I knew that there was a lot of stuff in there. I'd lived in that house for a short while and I would just throw stuff in there to to get it out of my hair. Sometimes just literally if my mum was coming round, you know, and and the house looked untidy. I would just, like, run round and gather it all together and just throw it in there. So when I opened the door, it was just one big absolute mess and stuff just thrown everywhere. And, um, I mean, I suppose a lot of people, they've got a loft or they've got a cupboard or even just, like, a pocket or a drawer in the kitchen that they just throw things in. And we all think at some point, oh, yeah, I'll sort that out. That's something I'll come back to later. I'll, I'll organise that. But we very seldom do do that. But every now and again, this idea of this loft space kept coming back to me until eventually, about six or seven years ago, I guess, I just decided to dive in. And it actually literally was like diving in because it's actually just some storage space And so at its greatest height, it's about three and a half feet, and then it tapers down to nothing. It's a bit like being inside a Toblerone pack. (laughs) So in order to go through it, I had to really kind of... It was almost like swimming. I just had to get in, crawl around with all this dust and cobwebs, lift things up, then bring them back into the main room, drop them on the floor, and then look what I'd trawled up from the deep. Were they treasures from the deep? Or was it just rubbish? The key item in that pile of stuff is an exercise book, a school exercise book. Well, yeah. This is one of the first things I found in there that made me think I was onto something. Because I just decided that I wanted to look at all the objects, take photographs of them, then decide whether I was going to throw them or not. And this was one of the first things where I thought, oh, okay, now I understand why you're doing that. Because I had this kind of feeling that maybe there was a story waiting for me, hidden up there in the dark, in the loft. And this, this made me feel like I was on the right track. So the, you can see it's an exercise book, but really the important thing is, is here, where <laughs> I've written... <laughs> so, you know, for me, pulp means pop. Pulp means throwaway items that I think 
can reveal more about a society than the supposedly revered items. And this exercise book is a place where I wrote my ideas of what I wanted a band to be. Um, from the age of around seven, I guess, I knew that I wanted to be in a band. I would have written this book around the age of 15. So this is before I actually had a band, before there were other members in it, but it was my idea of what the band would be. And it starts off very specifically, actually, with what the band are going to wear. This is, as it says at the top, the pulp wardrobe illustrated. <laughs> Yeah, it starts with duffel coats, so, I mean, I, I, that mystifies me because, uh, I mean, duffel coats are really kind of, they're made out of that very stiff kind of felt material, so, and they'd be much too hot to wear on stage. So. <laughs> and then we've got crew neck jumpers, garish T-shirts, plain shirts, a rancid tie, <laughs> uh, drainpipe trousers that are mauve for some reason, uh, pointy boots... Oxfam jacket, silly socks, shortish hair, and a sequin used for a silly purpose. <laughs> so, so, like, my first reaction when seeing that this, this document started with the fashion guide was like thinking, oh, that's a bit shallow. But you have to remember this happened, this would all have happened in the aftermath of punk rock, which happened in 1976, 1977. And that was like a big thing where you had to decide whether you were for it or against it. And one of the easy ways of showing whether you were for it or against it was to change the way you dressed. You know, before punk, it was all, everything was wide, big wide lapels, big wide trousers, and then everything went very, very thin. And I think that's my attempt at kind of acknowledging punk while still not wearing clothes that I would get told off about because I was still going to school, you know, and, and you would get told off and get detention if you were wearing clothes that were too outlandish. Punk was really appealing as a whole ideology of making your own fun. Was that the appeal it had for you in Sheffield, Jarvis? Yeah, the timing of it for me was absolutely perfect because, as I say, I'd wanted to be in a band from a very early age. I didn't really know how to do it. You know, it was more an idea than a practical thing. I, I never really went to music lessons. I, I had tried to play the guitar and really failed miserably. And then Punk came along and said, oh, don't worry about musical ability or anything like that. Look, we'll just show you these three chords. Duh, duh, duh. Now go and form a band. And so it really, it gave a lot of people permission to join in. I said it was absolutely... Very, very, very important for me uh, that that happened. And, yeah, and then I, I kind of just looked around school trying to find other kids who weren't really too much into sport or anything. Basically, <laughs> kids who were left out of any of the <laughs> activities and trying to get them to come to a rehearsal to, for us to start a band. Jarvis, you have the thing in, early on in that exercise book, which is called The Pulp Master Plan. Could you read it to us, please? I can, yeah. You can see that I've taken a lot of trouble with this. This is why I'm amazed that I couldn't remember it, but um, I've done proper, you know, joined-up writing. I've underlined <laughs> things. I've taken it seriously. So um, I'll read you a bit from the Pulp Master Plan. So the Pulp Master Plan, Category A, Music. Being first and foremost a musical unit, it is fitting that Pulp's first conquest should be of the music business. The group shall work its way into the public eye by producing fairly conventional, yet slightly offbeat pop songs. <laughs> After gaining a well-known and commercially successful status, the group can then begin to subvert and restructure both the music business and music itself. <laughs> I mean, um, obviously that's a little bit hyperbolic, but um, <laughs> when I read that, I was, quite, I was quite touched by it because it's quite, uh, if you pardon the pun, a lofty ambition. It's, it's uh, I'm wanting something to happen. I, I'm not seeing a group as just a way to make lots of money and travel the world and, and go and buy a chateau. It's like uh, I'm thinking of, of how 
fame could lead to some kind of changing of the status quo within society. And the next bit really made me laugh when I got to a certain point. See if it makes you laugh as well. So part two of the Pulp Master Plan, the music business. <laughs> After releasing first single on own self-financed label, the group shall be signed up on a very short-term deal to a major record company. After fulfilling their contract, Pulp shall then use their amassed resources to set up their own record label and string of record shops. Thus, all money made on a Pulp record shall come back to Pulp, except for the VAT. <laughs> I think you can tell that the group formed in an economics lesson. I, I obviously was listening to it there. There's also a picture you have in your book of a kind of a heroic image, really, of Pulp and how it rescues the struggling artist. Can you, can you explain what's going on in that picture, Jarvis? I can, yeah. So this is really showing in a diagrammatic form how Pulp are going to change the whole face of, of the music industry. So you've got, this arm, you've got this arm here with a fist and it says major record company and held Within that fist is this little figure, a repressed artist. But if you look above the arm, it's like a meat cleaver. And on the blade of the meat cleaver, it says Pulp Incorporated. And uh, as it says here, soon to be severed arm. What's going to happen is the Pulp <laughs> meat cleaver could sever the arm and thus free the repressed artist. As I say, you know, kind of easy to laugh at now, but I'm kind of glad that I, I was thinking big. You know, it's a kind of an altruistic way of looking at pop stardom, I guess. The whole theme of the book points to its title, Good Pop, Bad Pop. Can you tell me what Good Pop was for you as a kid? Yeah, I mean, I think nowadays when you say pop, you, you immediately think of pop music, which nowadays is, is, is a very specific almost like a genre of music, but I'm trying to think of pop in a wider context. So beyond music even, you know, because it, at some points in the book, I talk about Andy Warhol and how important discovering him was and his idea of pop, which is basically to take brands and things that surround you and say, okay, they're not just products. We can put those on a gallery wall. If you, if you put those things in your life, then they're valid things to represent within an artwork, which I guess was a very revolutionary idea at the time. But in terms of pop, yeah, I mean, pop was such a key thing for me because listening to pop radio as a kid, when I was, like, say, when my mum was getting me ready to go to school, that was the first time that I really realize what music it could do to you. And there's this song called Where Do You Go To My Lovely? I'll sing a little bit of it. Where do you go to my lovely when you're alone in your bed? I know the thoughts that surround you because I can see inside your head. Yes, I can. <laughs> Was that him? And the, the, I mean... When you got to that line about I can see inside your head, as a kid, that absolutely petrified me. The thought that somebody <laughs> coming out of a radio could see inside your head and see your thoughts kind of scared me. But the other thing that I learned from that song was, even though as a kid I didn't really understand what he was singing about, when I heard it, it gave me this kind of tingling feeling. And I think... A lot of us will have experienced that. When you hear a song that you really like, you get this kind of fully tingling around your shoulders and the back of your neck. And I loved that feeling and I found it very mysterious, like thinking, how can a sound coming out of a little box make me have a physical reaction? And I think that's really what led to me wanting to write my own songs, like wanting to be able to create that feeling myself and make other people feel that. And it's still a thing that I use, you know, if I'm writing a song and we're rehearsing it, if I get that feeling while we're playing it, I know that I'm on the right track and it's a very ineffable thing. It's like a little light that, that guides you in the right direction, hopefully, if you, if you can keep your wits about you. So 
the pop that I grew up with was chart pop, and it was a weird kind of democratic yet capitalistic thing. People kind of voted for the records that they liked by buying them. A seven-inch single was pretty cheap, like 50, 60 pence, something like that. Uh, and then, you know, you would buy a record and then you would listen to the chart rundown to see whether the record that you bought had gone up the charts or down. And some kids at our school would bring a, a transistor radio to school so they could listen to the midweek chart. I mean, that's taken quite a big interest in, in, in the charts. Listening to a song like that, like Where Do You Go To My Lovely On A Transistor Radio, hearing that slightly tinny sound, I, when I was that age, it all sounded like music from another planet to me. And it sounded like, I don't know, a place you could sort of maybe get there one day in your life. Did you think you could ever get there? Or was that just an impossible science fiction-y place, that land where that music came from? Yeah, that's a good point, actually, because my other kind of childhood ambition was to be an astronaut, uh, which is really going off into the, the unknown or whatever. You're right, you mean, the thing of getting a radio and turning the dial and then hearing something and sometimes the signal will go in and out or whatever. You're right, it seemed like it was being beamed in from another planet. I think the human imagination is an amazing thing. It will fill in gaps. And if something catches your imagination, you go off into it. And, and, and I found that was another thing that I liked about pop was that it took you out of yourself in a way. It, it, it stirred up these, like I say, the tingle or whatever, would stir up some feelings inside you that maybe you didn't even know you had. And then once those feelings had been stirred up, it would set you off on a bit of a quest to find out where did those sounds come from? Where did that, those ideas come from? So it, it expanded your uh, horizons. I, thought, I think that was what I liked about it. Got another photo from your book. It's a school photo of you, Jarvis. Towards the end of your, your life in high school there, uh, you've got glasses on, you've got sort of fluffy hair and a skinny tie and a little stripy, tiny, tiny, stripy little beard thing on your chin there. What, what, what are the kind of looks you're going for there? So by this point, I think I have got other people to be in a band with me. Maybe we've rehearsed a little bit, but being a pop star was not on the school curriculum. So I had to try and kind of uh, teach myself through other channels. And one of the channels was being a music fan. I can see very clearly three particular influences on my look at the time, which is me trying to channel three other pop performers that I was into. So if we start with the hair, which as you say is quite high and unruly, that was a direct homage to Ian McCulloch of Echo and the Bunnymen. Um, I really loved Echo and the Bunnymen. I'd first heard them on the John Peel show and I'd, I'd gone to see them. Um, they played this kind of secret concert that ended up being not that far from Sheffield. Uh, so I liked the music, but I definitely liked the hair as well because Ian McCulloch had this high hair and I was experiencing difficulties with keeping my hair under control. Uh, it was kind of bushy, and Ian made me realise that that needn't be a drawback. You could actually accentuate it and make it into something. So I was very grateful to him for that. Then he mentioned this kind of thing, which isn't really a beard, it's just like a stripe of hair. I just started shaving. That was really kind of, kind of difficult for me because, you know, my father had left when I was seven years old. So my mum had to try and teach me to shave. Now, I know maybe there are sometimes women do have facial hair, but not that many of them. So she was, to, she was trying to teach me about shaving from a position of absolute ignorance. So consequently, I, I kind of cut myself to ribbons quite a lot when I was doing it. And then I tried aftershave and I just couldn't believe that that could even be marketed because <laughs> you know what I mean? You put something you just shaved, and then suddenly you put something on your face that absolutely kills. Anyway, so it was a drag. So I wanted to try and turn it into something, and, and that beard was—I uh, was into the Stranglers as well, and the Stranglers, the lead guitarist and vocalist Hugh Cornwell. He'd done a solo album, and on the back sleeve, he seemed to have got this little beard. 
So I, I copied that. And since looking at that record sleeve again with this picture of Hugh Cornwell on, I think that maybe I made a mistake and it isn't actually a beard, it's just like a cleft in his chin. <laughs> and then the, I suppose the most obvious part of the, my look is these national health spectacles. National health spectacles were things at that time that you could get free on the national health in the UK if, if you were from a low-income family. Uh, we qualified as that because my mum was a single parent. But if you wore national specs, other kids would just say, ha, you've got no money. <laughs> there was a kind of a social stigma attached to them. And then in the wake of punk, with all this thing of people amplifying things that otherwise would have been seen a drawback, Elvis Costello started wearing national health specs. And for me, that was another empowering thing, you know, that I could say, no, these glasses are not a sign of poverty. These glasses are like rock star glasses, so fuck you. You've got a cassette with you. Tell me about this cassette and the process of getting from A to B or to C to D as a band once you put together a bunch of mates to start a band with, Jarvis. So this cassette contains the very first rehearsal of Paul. So as we've covered up to now, we've covered my visualisation of what the band is going to look like, how it's going to change the whole of the music industry, what I personally am going to look like as a singer. The only kind of missing part of this whole jigsaw is what music are we going to have? And you know, just one small, you know, omission is that we actually have to have songs and music. So this was a big a moment. So uh, I managed to persuade some people to come and have a rehearsal with me. We went round to my grandparents' house uh, because they had like a, an electric organ in their spare room. One of us played the organ. I was trying to play the guitar. And then the drummer, we didn't have any drums. So he just hit the coal scuttle in the in the room with with like uh, you know one of those little shovels that you, you shovel coal in <laughs> you can imagine this horrible this horrible kind of noise and we just kind of pressed play and record on the cassette recorder and just started making noise now i don't know whether that's because we thought somehow through some magic process when we listened back to this cassette a song would have magically appeared <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know if we were quite that naive. But anyway, we just, we recorded it. Then we went back round to our house and started listening to it. And, we, you know, within two minutes, it, it was like we were really depressed because it was just this horrible, horrible cacophony of everybody making, it was like a competition to see who could make the most noise. Obviously, the coal scuttle kind of won. Um, <laughs> all except for this one tiny moment this was a moment where, while we were in, in my grandparents' front room, there was suddenly this moment where a shaft of sunlight came through a crack in the curtains and blinded us. And at that moment, everybody stopped playing, and I just went, ah, the sun. And it was just this moment, it maybe lasts five seconds on the tape, but it was a clue. It wasn't a song, obviously, but it was like a clue that to make a song and to make music, you have to collaborate, you have to make things happen at the same time. And if you could do that, then that might lead to something. And that's, that's on there. I mean, you have to wade through 60 minutes of absolute <laughs> torture, you know, four seconds or something. But it was like the first very small inkling that that's what we needed to do. As I, as I put it in the book, music is just organised noise. It's a way of making sounds do what you want them to do, and it's, it's, that's what you have to learn to do. I think this is a point you make, the point of persisting through that awful noise until something comes into focus. Is that how you'd see it? Yeah, I think so. It's like, on that first rehearsal, this moment was like four seconds, and then... The interesting bits hopefully get longer and longer 
until eventually you have actually got a song. Occasionally, I've been asked to go and do like a, a music workshop with young children, maybe, you know, like kids of like eight or nine years old, sometimes a little bit younger. And, and you get a pile of instruments, you say, go on, take what you want. And then I say, okay, start playing. And then I put my fingers in my ears for about 10 minutes because the first thing a kid is going to do if given the permission to make noise is they're going to make noise and just make as much noise as they possibly can. And then after 10 minutes, it starts to settle down. Part of it is just physical. It's like maybe their arm is hurting because they've been hitting something so hard for 10 minutes. But another thing of it is just boredom or you're giving yourself a headache. And then you get to this point, as I say, where you start to listen to the other people. And then you realise that when that happens, it sounds better. And then something starts to coalesce. And I think it is just that persistence. It's almost like the songs will just happen as a natural byproduct of just being with those people. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Jarvis, you've been an interviewer as well, and there came a time when you interviewed... Leonard Cohen, about songwriting. Can you tell that story about what happened when you asked Leonard Cohen about what it means to write songs and the business and the process of writing songs, the mechanics of it? Well, that was a real big mistake, to be honest. The section of the book that I talk about that is a section called The Magic Circle. It's like an interlude in the book. And it starts off with me thinking about this question um, this question of, should I even be discussing the creative process because maybe that means you'll chase the muse away, you know, that, that if you think about it too much and analyse it, you'll kill it. And I think this is a common superstition in musicians, not just musicians, but creative people. For instance, I, I heard that David Lynch once went to a therapist and just before the session began, he said to the therapist. I'm not very good at doing a David Lynch impression. I'll try it. It's like, hey, Doc, um, could this... Is that all right? It sounds like Northern Irish, actually. Um, hey, Doc, could this affect my creative process? And apparently the analyst said, well, you know, David, uh, in all honesty, yeah, it could do. And then, so the story goes, David Lynch stood up and said, sorry, Doc, that's a chance I'm not prepared to take, and just walked out of the consulting room so I think because we don't really know where songs or ideas come from because sometimes it seems like you're tuning in to some message from the beyond you don't want to kind of mess your receiver up you don't want to disconnect it by thinking about it too much and, and as you say I had a real example of that from when I interviewed Leonard Cohen I used to do this show on the BBC in the UK that was every Sunday called Jarvis Cocker's Sunday Service. And a request came in saying that, well, Leonard Cohen has got an album coming out. It was the album Old Ideas. And there's a listening session going to happen in this hotel in central London. Will you host it? And I mean, I said yes straight away because I'm a massive fan of Leonard Cohen and the idea of meeting him uh, was exciting to me. But once I said yes, then the kind of nerve started because, you know, there's all this stuff, you don't meet your heroes, all these things that people say to you and things like that. And I was, I'm not a professional journalist, so I kind of worried about whether my questions were going to be good, all this kind of stuff. So I, I got myself into quite a state about it. Uh, which was then amplified on the actual day because we turned up and nobody told me that we were going to have to listen to the album first. And not only that, I was going to have to sit next to Leonard Cohen whilst we listened to the album. So I just had to sit next to him in complete silence for 40 minutes, which was just 
really stressful because I kept thinking, if I if I move or if I twitch, you'll interpret that as some kind of criticism of the musical. So I was just like kind of struck like a statue like this. Um, anyway, we eventually get to the kind of Q&A thing after, and I was just asking him about, there's a track on that album called Banjo, and I just, I just said, uh, I quoted a couple of lines, and I just said, you know, what are you getting at there? And he kind of just he kind of looked at me intently for a few seconds, and then he just said, Jarvis, I don't think that we should go here. Um, and then I, I wouldn't let it go. So, so I, I just, and then he, he just looked at me again and said, we should not discuss these sacred mechanics. If we do, it'll put a monkey wrench in the whole thing and neither of us will write a song again. <laughs> I took the hint then that we shouldn't, I shouldn't pursue this line. Um, but yeah, so, I, you know, that was an example of, of this thing of, of, I mean, I love that phrase, sacred mechanics, you know, that's a, a lovely way of putting it. And he's right, you know, it is a sacred thing, it's, it's a magical thing, and I think that's what keeps people doing it, you know. I'm still excited by the fact that if I start to write a song, I don't really know what's going to come out. There's no formula. I've, I've not established a formula, even though that I've been writing songs for over 40 years. It's always a surprise, and you're always taking a stumble in the dark, and sometimes that can be frustrating because you're thinking, surely after 40 years I should have established some kind of professionalism or some whatever, but... And you do pick up little bits, and you learn to be attentive to your moods and, and ideas, but still... A massive part of it is dealing with the unknown. And it's kind of what keeps you coming back to it because you've got this chance of, of surprising yourself and of discovering something new about yourself. There's another photo taken from the Sheffield Star. You're still quite young and you're with your bandmates in a living room and you've got a little woolen vest on and you're holding a kind of a, is it a metal or ceramic tortoise in your hand. Tell me what's going on in that photo, what's, what's about to happen, and what, what do you think the significance of the tortoise is? Uh, what had happened was like an, a, an amazing thing. I mentioned John Peel in passing, you know, I, I don't know if people in Australia are so familiar with him. He was very, a very pivotal figure in, in the UK in the early, late 70s. He was the only person who really played new wave and punk rock music. He's got the godfather of independent and alternative radio, you know. So I started listening to his show and it was a massive musical education for me. I used to record things off his show and it provided a lot of ideas. One feature of his shows was he used to have these sessions where he would invite a band down to the Maida Vale Studios in London and they would record four songs which were then broadcast on his show. And, you know, it was like every indie band's dream to get a John Peel session. And I was no different. So I heard that he was coming to Sheffield to, to do some DJing at the Polytechnic. As luck would have it, Pulp had recorded their very first demo about two weeks before then. So I did a copy of the demo. I made like a cardboard sleeve for it, did like a sleeve design on it and went down to the John Peel Roadshow, as it was billed. Spent the whole evening trying to think, when am I going to give him this cassette? Finally, the Roadshow came to an end. He was packing his records up. I thought, I still haven't given him the cassette. I thought, I've got to do it now, I've got to do it now. Walked to the stage. He was just picking his record cases up, and I kind of presented this tape and just said, please, Mr Peel, will you listen to this? He kind of looked at me, took it away, said, I'll listen to that on the way home. And... A week later, the unthinkable happened. We, there was a phone call. Actually, it was taken by my grandmother. I was at school. My grandfather had done some creative wiring, so both my grandparents who lived next door and us, we shared the same phone number. My grandmother answers the phone, and there's this guy saying, uh, hello, I'd like you to come down and record a session for John Peel. And she, she went, uh, 
Oh, I think you want our Jarvis. Um, so she took the number. Um, when I came back from school that day, she told me. And then, so this was just like an incredible moment where I just thought, you know, I've not even finished school. We're going to do a John Peel session. This is it. Stardom, stardom is just around the corner. So that photo that you referred to was a result of that. The local Sheffield newspaper, the Sheffield staff, found out about this, that these school kids had got a, a Don Peel section. So that was a story. So this photographer came to my mum's house and he had this terrible, corny idea. What he, His original concept was he wanted to take one photograph of us in our stage gear and one photograph of us in our school uniforms. And we just said... Mm-mm-mm, very cheesy. So the, the photograph is like a compromise. We're, we're kind of in my mum's living room. I think I have got my school uniform one, but the rest haven't. One member of the band is wearing a trilby. That definitely was not school uniform. Um, and then I'm looking at the photograph. I'd only ever really seen it, you know, in the newspaper and where the definition is not so good. Looking at the actual print of the photo... I'm going, what the, what's that that I'm holding? And I'm holding this, it's actually a, a radio. It's a radio in the shape of a tortoise. Um, it's like, uh, when you turn it on, its eyes flash along with the music. It's, it's pretty good. Um, I, I instantly leaped on the symbolism of the fact that I'm holding this tortoise because we all know the story of the tortoise and the hair, you know, the hair. It's doing things quicker, the tortoise takes his time. And at this particular point, when that photograph was taken, I thought pop stardom was just around the corner. In actual point of fact, it wasn't until 14, almost 15 years after that photograph was taken that Paul first had a hit record. So I found a poignancy in that photo. Obviously, it's some form of projection on my part, but... Could it be that somewhere I knew that I was destined for life in the slow lane, that it would take so long for me to realise this ambition that I'd had since seven years old? Obviously, it's impossible for me to have known it, but there is photographic evidence of me holding a tortoise. So we all tend to think of the past as something, almost like an object, something solid, like... That happened, so that's something that's carved in stone. But when you actually go back and look at the past closely, you realise that it's not carved in stone at all. It's more like little marks on the sand, and sometimes the past will really surprise you. Things that you take as a fact, you'll find out were absolutely the opposite of what you thought at the time. Uh, And like I say, this idea that maybe... I had this this kind of inkling that I was a tortoise. Um, yeah, it was just a bit of a strange moment. You're hearing a conversation with Jarvis Cocker, founder of the UK band Pulp, recorded with an audience at the Melbourne Writers Festival. Jarvis's book, Good Pop, Bad Pop, is the story of his early life, told through a bunch of old items he found in boxes of stuff that he'd been stashing away in his loft. And at this point, I asked Jarvis the story behind one of those items, which was a scrap of paper, a handwritten get-well message from someone called Adrienne that simply said, hang in there, Jarvis. It's all about falling out of the window. The girl who wrote that note, hang in there, Jarvis, was someone that I had a crush on. And one night, we went back to her flat and... um, we were just like sat there, you know, sometimes you can get in those moments where you know that there's some things in the air, but neither of you can make a move or whatever. And for some reason, to kind of like lighten the atmosphere, I decided to try and do a stunt to impress her. Such, I mean, just such a bad idea. Um, the stunt, I don't know if I can really act it out very well here. So... About a week before this awkward encounter occurred, I'd been at a party, and at this party, somebody had done the stunt. They'd gone up to the windows, uh, and they were sash windows. So they 
lifted this window up, then they walked to a window about three feet here and they lifted that one up. Then he went out onto the balcony and then stepped across onto the other window ledge and came in. So he stepped out through one window, came back in through the other window. Brief moment around the outside of the building. Everybody in the party thought it was a great stunt, myself included. And um, so for some reason, this idea comes back into my head whilst I'm in Adrienne's flat. So I said, I'm going to do a stunt to impress you. But when I go to her windows, this is where the idea should have stopped because I go to her, she's living in a modern flat. So her windows were these kind of, they're like a metal frame and then there was a hinge here. So you, you open a handle and then you push. And so as you push the window, this top bit kind of comes in and the, and the bottom bit goes outside the building. So there's no way to do that stunt because the window is sticking out. So there's no way that you could stand on the window ledge. So that should have, as I said, that should have been the point at which I said, okay, <laughs> let's do something else. But for some reason I decided to persist. I said, I've got an idea. So my idea was to go out of the window and then hang from her window ledge, <laughs> reach over to the other window ledge, swing across, back up into the room. Now you can tell there's a lot that could go wrong with that idea. <laughs> and, but, so, you know, like a couple of minutes later, I'm out and I'm hanging from the window ledge and I kind of think, wow, this is really difficult. There's, I, I realise there's no way I'm going to be able to go across to the other window ledge. So I think, okay, uh, I've given it a go, let's go back into the living room. <laughs> and I suddenly realised I haven't got the strength even to lift myself back into the room. So I look up, she's looking at me out of the window, and I say, um, is there anybody else in the flat? And she said, no. So it's at this point that I realise I'm kind of starting to lose my grip. So I say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt a controlled drop. <laughs> Which, I don't even know what that means, you know, a controlled drop. Falling is falling. I should point out this window is on the third story of, of an apartment block, so it's quite a long way up. But I, my logic there was that if I let go consciously, I'll fall straight down, whereas if I wait until I lose all strength, I might fall backwards and fall on my head or fall on my back, whatever. So I just say to her, OK, I'm going to count to three and let go. And she's going, please don't do that. Please don't do that. And I say, I'm going to do it. So one, two, three. And then it was like quite a long time. And then I hit the ground. And I'm on the ground, and I look up, like I see her, like, looking out the window, and I said, can you call an ambulance, please? <laughs> um, it's kind of a funny story, but, but, you know, the revelation that I think I got from this was, if that scene had been in a film, first of all, there would have been, like, dramatic music playing, and then also probably when I, when I was there and I, I would have probably found that last ounce of strength and heroically dragged myself back in, but that didn't happen. This wasn't a film, this was real life. And something about that, I think, the fact that I survived it, something made me realize that instead of, instead of maybe taking inspiration from from films and other songs and things like that. I should be looking at real life. I should be looking at reality. It brought me down to earth in more ways than one. It, it, it made me focus on my immediate surroundings. And I ended up in a hospital. I was in a convalescent hospital for like two months and kind of talking to the guys, other, other people who were there. I started taking notes. I think I've got them here, actually. And I just got this real kind of conviction that what I had to do was 
stop dreaming and just try and take down real life that was happening to me. So I started writing these kind of like character studies of people I have met whilst in hospital. Like the first one on the list is uh, Doug Wong, about 50, trapped nerve, always giving nurses quality street, silly shoes with high heels, hit by taxi, teeth removed to fix skull. <laughs> and when reading back on those, they read a little bit like, you know, the notes that a private detective might make if they were kind of tailing someone. And, and I think they are a bit like that. This was me thinking, if I can take the details of life down in as much detail as, as, as I'm capable of, that will crack the case wide open, that will reveal something to me. And it was a real turning point in my songwriting. You know, I, I began to write about my everyday life and put that stuff in there. It was a very, very significant moment and set me off on a different path, which I've attempted to follow to this day, I guess. But yes, Adrienne had a sense of humour, so yeah, I find her, I find her get well known quite funny. Hang in there, Jarvis. <laughs> The fall was from such a height that it shattered a whole lot of bones on the whole right side of your body. You had a fractured pelvis, broken wrist, broken arm. It must have been extraordinarily painful. Years and years ago, I interviewed the Australian theatre and movie director, Jim Sharman. He's the guy who directed the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And he had a long period of convalescence in his youth from illness. And here's a theory which was, if you look into the lives of people who've gone on to do very interesting things, very often you find at some point in their youth they've had a long period of convalescence where they've been stuck in bed and it's allowed them to bring all these stray thoughts together and the drive to go and do something extraordinary after that. Do you think that's what happened to you, Jarvis? Um, yeah, that's an interesting theory. Yeah, I, I think it could do because as well as, you know, taking these detailed notes on, on the other people in the ward, I also looked at my own life and where I was in it. You don't often get that chance to be taken out of hustle and bustle of life, then you kind of can't wait to get back into it and you, you kind of make a plan about how you're going to engage with life when you're allowed back in. And it, it definitely had that effect on me. It was like a reset button, you know, it kind of reset it. And when I came back into life, I had this new idea about how to go about things. And I think eventually, I think that's where the idea that I would leave Sheffield first entered in my head, I, I, that I would have to maybe leave Sheffield and go to London to take things to another stage. I found as I read the book, I really liked the young Jarvis. I really liked young Jarvis's optimism and his drive and his creativity, his willingness to go against the grain, his willingness to try and make something wonderful out of the junk that's just lying around 1980s Thatcherite Sheffield. I think sometimes when we think of our younger selves, we're embarrassed by our younger selves, all our foolishness, the things we don't know, the things we got wrong, the silliness, the embarrassing things we did. In the process of writing this book and recovering these objects, did you like your younger self much more once you'd written the book? Yeah, that's an interesting question because when I read back stuff that I'd written at the time, often I did find that kind of excruciatingly embarrassing or just irritating. When you look at uh, things that people have written, that's them trying to project a certain idea about themselves. So when I found that notebook, although it was very bombastic, this idea that Pulp are going to restructure the music business, I was kind of charmed by the fact that the 15-year-old me had the, that kind of level of ambition. But then there was, for instance, this object. Just to be clear, Jarvis, you're holding up a, a worn-away soap bar of Cusson's Imperial Leather. That's, that's right, is it? Yes, and when I found that, I found that acutely embarrassing. I thought, what the hell is that doing there? And then gradually it dawned on me, the thing is that this particular design of the Cusson's Imperial Leather label was discontinued in the mid-90s, or early 90s, I think. And I was so horrified by this that I started buying dead stock of uh, Cousins Imperial Leather. Uh, then the dead stock ran out, and this was the last bar of soap with the old label that was in my possession. 
when I got to this stage where there's more label than soap, which is normally when you would throw it in the bin, I could just could not bring myself to do that and therefore put it in the loft for future generations. But, so this, this says something not so good about me. I think this says something about a, a, a fear of change. Why would you hold on to a, a fragment of old soap? You know, the, so, yeah, I, I think I was very lucky to stumble across this way of approaching a memoir or a life story, you know, for it not to be my ideas about what my life has been, but for it to be actual documentary evidence of the things that I've chosen to have in my life, not all of which are great, but they can't be denied because they're there. You know, I've kept hold of them. It gave me a different kind of in into looking at where I am and where I've been. Jarvis, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you and having this wonderfully intimate conversation with you despite you being on the other side of the world. Please thank Jarvis Cocker. Jarvis Cocker's book is called Good Pop, Bad Pop. Big thank you from us to all the lovely people at the Melbourne Writers' Festival and ABC Melbourne for putting together such a fun event and for the recording as well. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. I'm Molly. And I'm Carl. And we're the hosts of the kids' podcast, Short and Curly. Each of our episodes tackles a curly question about the world. Like, should we try and bring back extinct animals? Is it your fault if your room is messy? And is it ever okay to lie? Plus, we have a lot of fun along the way. Well, we make a lot of fun of you, Carl. It's a podcast to get the whole family thinking and talking. Short and curly. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.